welcome to the Corrie Miller podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma. In the first year of Brexit and a century after the partition of Ireland, I'm in conversation with special guests, exploring contemporary Irishness and Britishness through the lenses of history, politics, art and theology. And this week, on the penultimate podcast in our series of 12, my guest is Dr. Leah Shimada. She's an author, a geographer, a mediator and a theologian. And in a wide-ranging conversation, we talk about the politics of trees, her book on migration, as well as bereavement and death. Originally from the United States, Leah spent many years in Belfast, working as a mediator in communities riven by grief and also finding herself negotiating prejudices. I think what my experience of working and living in Belfast taught me is that sometimes I just needed to pause and say, is this coming out of racism or is it ignorance or is it even just ill-expressed curiosity? And so there was a lot of giving people the benefit of the doubt. What was really interesting about working and living in Belfast is that the, the grief, the bereavement, the loss was quite close to the surface and there was something very real about that. Hello and welcome to the Corrie podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma, and with me today is Dr. Leah Shimada. Leah is a professional mediator and group facilitator based in London, specialising in conflict, diversity and community dialogue. Leah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Where are you talking to us from today, Leah? I'm calling in from Kilburn, which is in, which is in North London. Ah, lovely. Um. In a while, we're going to talk a little bit about your most recent book, Mapping Faith, Theologies of Migration and Community. Um, but I'd love to hear from you first. You know, you've gone through a number of migrations yourself and you write about this, you know, both physically and professionally and also in terms of your spiritual home. What is it about migration and journeying that has been part of your life, but also that you find appealing in terms of a reflection and writing exercise? I think I've, I've always been aware of my background as a migrant. Um, I grew up in Seattle in the northwest corner of the States. My uh, grandparents all migrated uh, from China and Japan. So um, from a very young age, I was very aware that my family had not been long settled in the place where I had grown up. Um, and I chose to, uh, to, to go to university completely on the other side of the country. So for me, um, it was it was always a sense of being rooted in a place, but very much wanting to uh, see, experience new horizons. Um, and that experience has just kind of stayed with me throughout my life. Like, where did you choose to go to university and what, what made you choose there? I, I went to Wellesley, which is um, just outside of Boston in New England. And I chose there because I had never been to New England. Um, at that point, I, I'd never really been outside of the Northwest. And I just thought uh, it would be an interesting experience to um, live in a different time zone, for one thing. Um, also, I thought um, as someone who grew up near a coast, I, I very much wanted to stay near the water. That, that was really important to me. Um, and my mother um, was a, a primary school teacher, so we grew up with placemats at the dinner table, uh, maps of the country, maps of the world. And uh, from a very young age, I was just um, fascinated by seeing how the world is depicted, um, seeing where 
where different places, um, how they relate to each other, where they were. So I think from a very young age, I just started dreaming about where I'd like to go experience. And uh, that eventually took me all over the world. Yeah. I saw that, you know, you got a fellowship um, in studying environmental sciences. You got a fellowship to work with reforestation projects in Nepal and Madagascar and Ireland. What an interesting trinity of places. Were there other places too, or was it just those three? I've never traveled outside of the U.S. at that point. I just thought leaving university, it would be a good experience to just practice applying for a grant. So I did. I uh, cobbled together a proposal that really came out of my, um, at, the, at that time of my life, my, uh, I, I suppose, the, the challenge of trying to redefine what environmentalism meant to me and, um, and how I would inhabit that. I was also at that point really uh, starting to explore the possibility of being a professional geographer. So I, uh, I thought, well, it, it would be a good experience applying for a grant, learning how to do it, putting together a proposal. Um, and I just thought, big sky dreaming, if someone gave me that much money, where would I go? And I, I literally looked at a map and chose three places at random, <laughs> knowing virtually nothing about any of them. Um, I chose Ireland. Nepal and Madagascar. And I was absolutely horrified when I kept passing through the interview rounds and ended up getting this fellowship. <laughs> the, the only people more horrified than I was uh, were my parents. <laughs> so they, uh, they very kindly uh, agreed to administer my affairs while I was away. Um, I left with a one-way ticket to Dublin uh, just a few weeks after graduating from university. And really that experience changed the, the trajectory of my life because it yeah. was um, during that year that I came to really understand what it is to travel. Um, and, and again, having never been outside of the U.S., it was also a, a crash course in learning how to navigate international borders. Um, I had to get a passport very quickly as well. But uh, of all the places that I went that year, it really was Belfast that made me think, this is what it means to be alive in another place. This is what it means to uh, really learn who you are through the through the lens of um of another culture and to feel like um in belfast i felt like i could actually make a contribution to the place that had received me hmm. and I, I think because of that belfast has been a really important place to me throughout the rest of my adult life yeah you ended up coming back to live in belfast and staying for a number of years i did for a number of years how long were you here um, well, I came. I, I came to Belfast initially um, in 2000, so it was it was right around the time of the peace agreement. Um, and then I I used the remainder of my fellowship money to, after I finished in Nepal and, Madis, and, and Madagascar, to return to um, to Belfast, and I lived in Belfast again until the funding ran out. Then um, then I, I went back to to the states for a while. And um, while I was in the States, I, I was thinking about what I wanted to do next and, uh, and where I wanted to live. And I just had a, a real sense that um, there was more work for me to do in Belfast, specifically around racism. Um, when I was in Belfast the first time in 2000 and 2001, um, I, I very much was on the, the pointed end of receiving a lot of uh, racist abuse, but it was something that no one wanted to talk about. And I really felt like there was this whole conversation that wasn't happening that um, that I thought I, I could be a part of helping the people of Belfast have simply by being present. 
So um, when it came time to think about doing further study, I, I was very committed to wanting to, uh, to study geography. Um, the, the type of geography that I wanted to study was best done in, in the UK. So um, I, I enrolled at University College London, but with the agreement and understanding that I'd be based in Belfast. So I, I really spent probably um, four years from 2007 through 2010 working in uh, Northern Ireland. And it was a fascinating experience to come back to Belfast, having lived there previously. Um, as, as Belfast was moving through the 10th anniversary of the peace agreement. Ireland and particularly the North is is so parochial, you know, very quickly people will want to know, you know, who are you and where you're from? And, you know, you might only be from two miles down the road or half a mile across a peace wall. Um, I've had a bunch of friends come to visit from the United States, come to visit me in Belfast. And sometimes they might say, what should I say if anybody asks me if I'm a Catholic or a Protestant? And the answer is always, well, nobody will. And even if they did, you're just an American. And in preparing to interview you and looking at how you've written about your experiences here, I was struck with how white a, a response I gave to my white American friends that um, the idea that um, foreigners are always treated neutrally because they're outside of the context of aggression in, in Belfast, that is probably only something that a white person could say to a white person. Your experiences, your experience was so different. I think that my presence, particularly at that time, and, and bear in mind that this was before, say, the influx of, of a lot of the, um, the film industry really came into being, I think that my presence really confused people. Um, particularly the, the work that I was doing, I, um, I was working for a community regeneration organization and uh, working with different communities all over the city. So taking public transportation, going into places that were very much not used to seeing, uh, seeing foreigners, particularly foreigners that looked and sounded like me. Um, I think, you know, if, if you were just to encounter me without speaking to me, you, you would assume that I'm, uh, well, you would have probably assumed that I was part of the, the Chinese community, um, which at that time was really, um, I think, struggling to, to find its place. Um, I, I arrived uh, pretty much at the time when there was a lot of um, abuse toward, uh, toward members of yeah. the Chinese community, and it was, it was quite high, high profile as well. So I was very, I was very aware of that on a, on a number of levels. Um, but actually, I think when you live in a place and are committed to being part of it, you just have to take all of who you are to that place. Um, and what I was discovering while I was working and living in Belfast is that um, my, it was precisely the diversity of my own background that oftentimes enabled me to connect with communities. So, for example, if, if I was working in Republican um, communities where there had been a, a lot of history of people being um, imprisoned during the Troubles, um, I was able to speak about my, my Japanese grandparents' experience of being interned by the U.S. government during the Second World War, for instance. Yeah. Um, if I was working in, in Protestant communities, uh, I, I was able to draw on my, um, my family history of my Japanese grandfather having been a, a Methodist minister. So um, I, I was finding that um, the best way to navigate Belfast was just to be unapologetically myself <laughs> and to, uh, to, bring, to bring everything that I was and, and who I was to the table, so to speak. 
that takes a lot of um, kind of self-disclosure and reflecting in your own story and allowing and giving people the gift, really, of them figuring out their own identity questions through a sharing with you. What, what nurtures you and having that kind of level of generosity and equanimity? I think that for me, the biggest learning of being in Belfast was that I needed to slow down my initial reactions. So I think oftentimes, um, and I think this is a lesson that that is something that I continue to reflect on, it can be really easy to have a knee-jerk reaction and to assume that someone's being racist. <laughs> and, and quite often it is, um, you know, and I, I think I, I do think it's important to bear in mind that if someone is experiencing a comment or an action is racist, that needs to be taken seriously. But I think what my experience of working and living in Belfast taught me is that sometimes I just needed to pause and say, is this coming out of racism or is it ignorance or is it even just um, ill-expressed curiosity? And so there was a lot of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, sometimes it, it tried my patience more than at other times. Yeah. Um, so, for example, um, I was working in uh, some in a particular community, and I was really trying to get um, I was trying to get on, get on the good side of the people who were in charge of that community. So, I um, especially in the early days of working with them, I would bake cookies, chocolate chip cookies, uh, very American chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> and I would take them down to the pub <laughs> uh, in the hope of um, you know just just sort of. Uh, easing the relationship, because as you might imagine, a lot of these communities, that they did not want to work with me, um, mm. but it was important that we were able to develop a good working relationship. So in a sense, I suppose I would, I would go and bribe them with baked goods. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, more than one occasion when I would do this, I, I would get some uh, comments that I think were trying to be funny, but uh, they were usually along the lines of, oh, they're probably fortune cookies and they probably taste horrible. Um, and, and you know, whether or not they tasted horrible, this is not for me to judge, but they were definitely not fortune cookies. <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm pleased to say, I, I, don't, I don't think it's down to doing that, but um, I, I'm pleased to say that in the communities that I did work with, over time, uh, over time, for the most of them, we did develop a really warm relationship. Um, and I was really pleased with the, the level of trust, I think, that I was able to... Um, to facilitate, I think, precisely because I was not from Belfast. I remember hearing you speak once, Leah, and you told a story about a death threat you had when working in Belfast from a paramilitary organization. And you kind of quipped about a reflection on that death threat. Oh, it, it wasn't a death threat. It was um, they were threatening to throw me into the river if I didn't okay. sort something for them. <laughs> <laughs> Just being thrown into the river. Um, um, so, so the, the, the river at that po point was, I, I'm not sure what the pollution levels were like. It probably wasn't um, going to cause any fatalities, but I was quite keen not to be thrown into the river all the same. <laughs> and I was, I was struck by the, the way within which you were t telling this story in the context of a training in conflict. And you were telling it in a way that it was um, detached, where you were saying you spent some time thinking about the nature of the threat and being aware that they were being so specific and then speaking about other communities of people who aren't so specific when they're being nonetheless just as aggressive. Mm, yes, um, I I was reflecting on that quite a bit in the transition that I did between jobs. So I, I spent about four years working and living in Northern Ireland um, and then immediately from there went to work um, 
for the, the headquarters of the British Methodist Church, where I was working on the national diversity and inclusion strategy. Um, and I think doing that shift from working in community regeneration to working in a specifically uh, church-based context really gave me an insight into the way that different cultures um, respond to conflict. I, I, I think it's fair to say that um, clergy, clergy by and large, can, can often struggle with dealing with conflict. And um, that was something that I missed in that, <laughs> in that transition to being a church bureaucrat, is that in Belfast, if someone was upset with me, there would be no ambiguity. We, we'd have an honest conversation. We would, we would actually get what needed to be sorted, sorted. Whereas going and working um, with not, not just clergy, but with, uh, with, with lay Christians as well, I think um, Christians particularly want to be nice. <laughs> so um, my experience of uh, working kind of in, in the front row of or having, or having a front row view of church administration is that there is a lot of unexpressed passive aggression that seeps out in all sorts of weird and terrible and wonderful ways. And when you say Christians in particular, I know that your work has spanned, particularly in this book, um, Mapping Faith, Theologies of Migration and Community, your work has spanned um, working very interreligiously with people coming from different different aspects of world faiths. Uh, yes, yes, that was uh, really the, um, for me, the, the heart of this book is that I, I wanted to do something about migration and theology and about community, but I didn't just want it to be within one tradition. So um, in putting together the proposal for this book, I, I was very specific that it needed to be an interreligious conversation, an interfaith conversation. Um, and and I, I think for me, I wanted to learn in the process. I wanted to learn about other faith traditions, but I also wanted the opportunity to reflect on my own, um, to understand how my own experience of faith had migrated through the course of my life and how it might continue to migrate as I move into the future. And what is the story of your faith and its migration for you? Um, the story of, of my faith, in a nutshell, is that I grew up uh, in a family in Seattle where uh, religion was very confusing. So my mother, who was the daughter of Chinese immigrants, grew up with no faith. And my Japanese-American father, um, being a clergy child, grew up with too much religion. So he is now a card-carrying atheist. My mother is agnostic. And it was left to my, uh, my father's parents um, to take me to church. So I grew up um, going to church within the Japanese community in Seattle, um, which was a, a wonderful experience in a lot of ways. It really, I think, gave me um, a faith home that was rooted very much in a cultural community. Um, but like, like many people, uh, faith for me has been something that is constantly in a process of migration. So I grew up um, having spent my adolescence as quite an evangelical teenager. I then promptly uh, went the other direction, um, lost it completely, spent much of my uh, 20s um, really grappling with, with, with what it means to live in the world, uh, like I think many, many young people do. I came back to faith very slowly, um, initially through the Unitarian Church, then through the United Church of Christ, which is, a, a, I suppose, a more congregational um, denomination in the U.S., both, both from very liberal traditions. And by the time that I migrated to the U.K. in uh, 2005, I really was ready to, um, to be much more embedded in a faith community. Um, and it was a question of, of when and where and how. 
So I gave myself permission when I first moved to London to do three months of church shopping, um, which was a fascinating experience. Went to all sorts of different churches and denominations, had a lot of very bad biscuits, had a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Nothing very... like your chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Um, it's, it's amazing what you can learn about a congregation by inspecting their, their biscuit uh, <laughs> array. Um, and the place where I settled was uh, was the place where I still worship. It's a, it's a parish, an Anglican parish in central London, St. James's Piccadilly. Um, and I, I settled there and felt, felt at home, but also felt like it was a place where I could continue to explore and to migrate in my faith. And really, um, it's the place that's rooted me while I've been living in the UK. Your work has this extraordinary combination of theology and geography, you know, both areas that you've given great scholarship to. How did you go about selecting contributors for this book that is a kind of an overlap between migration and theology and community? Um, I'd like to say about the book, it is, it's a book, so it's full of words. Um, But from the beginning, I was really clear that it wasn't just going to be essays. I also wanted poetry, I wanted art, I wanted different types of ways that people could contribute to it. And I absolutely did not want it to be full of academic voices. I also was very committed to having an equal spread to the extent possible. And actually, I think we achieved it. I wanted to have an equal spread between the different religious perspectives. Um, Other books that have looked at theology of migration um, have tended to do so from a very academic standpoint and from a predominantly Christian one with, say, occasional Jewish or Muslim voices thrown in. And I I wanted this to be um, to be a, a widespread dialogue. I also wanted it to be um, to be a dialogue within traditions as well. So it was really important to me that uh, that the contributions, to the extent possible, um, reflected a range of perspectives within all of those traditions that we explore. And I think it's also important to say that not everyone wanted to self-identify as one of those three religions, and that that was important to honor as well. So, for example, um, Issam Korbaj, who is an artist from Syria, agreed to take part only if, in my interview with him, we could talk about why he wants to resist labels of identity. So it felt really important to be able to honor the ways in which people resisted being, um, being identified for their religious background. What is it about identity that you discovered and that you're you're kind of revealing and is being revealed through the stories that people offered and, and the reflections? I was really struck and moved by the um, by the, the ways in which people spoke about their own their own religious identities migrating. So, for instance, there is a really moving chapter by um, an Orthodox rabbi based in in London, based in North London, who talks about his own migration of, of faith. Um, and how he came to settle uh, in the, the place where he is currently practicing. Um, likewise, a, a young woman, um, Sophia Ramon, who's a, a scholar, she has done a lot of reflecting on the way that translation, the act of translation, is a form of migration and what that means for her own faith experience. So the contributors really um, taught me a lot about their, uh, I suppose, the courage that um, that they brought to their own reflective processes, their their own reflective journeys of being people of faith, um, grappling with this idea of migration, grappling with the theologies behind it. That taught me a lot about, um, I I think about the way that humanity is is capable of migrating, that we are not necessarily fixed in the positions that either we believe ourselves to be fixed in or that other people want to fix for us. 
the initial uh, process of pulling this book together was very frustrating and it was slow. But then there was this point, um, maybe six to eight months in, where there was a viable number of contributors from different backgrounds. And all of a sudden, it felt like the book took flight. All of a sudden, it felt like this was something that people would want to be part of. Um, it meant that I had to be quite creative in terms of how I would have people contribute, because not everyone is a writer by nature. So I did a lot of um, interviewing people and um, and I suppose ghost writing their chapters, or um, we would we would do it uh, do an interview and I would I would record it and then we would work together to get a, a text in their voice that they felt comfortable with. Um, but for me, it was about participation as well, and I wanted it to be something that people who, did, for example, were not native speakers could be part of. So the, the book itself has a variety of different forms of getting people's voices in there and across. Um, I think the other thing that I want to say about the book is that it is just a starting point for the conversation. Um, it, the uh, uh, 280... How many, how many pages is this? A 285 page book is going to, by necessity, be limited um, and it's going to leave out a lot of voices. So I, I very much hope that in time, another editor will come along and say, that's a really great set of themes, um, but Leah's book left out this, this, and this. So I'd like to commission another set of contributors with a completely different set of voices um, and, and continue the conversation. Karimila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, Karimila supports groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. This is the second last episode of the Karimila podcast. We've been delighted to bring these conversations to you from our kitchen table to yours in this important year. And if you had three or four minutes to give us some feedback, we'd be really grateful. We'd love to know how you're finding the podcasts, if you're making use of the transcript or discussion questions, and what questions the podcasts are raising for you. So we have a feedback form. You can find it, as well as the transcript and discussion questions for this episode, on corimila.org forward slash podcast, or linked through the show notes in your podcast app. You're listening to the Corrie podcast, and I'm Padraig Tuma. With me today is theologian, geographer, and community mediator, Dr. Leah Shimada. I wonder if you'd be able to tell us a little bit about the reforestation initiatives and looking at reforestation as a tool toward reconciliation that you've done. Again, that's a very interesting way where you bring geography into conversation with a discipline like conflict resolution. Mm, yes. So I spent my teenage years in Seattle planting a lot of trees. I, I was involved with um, a group of, um, of other teenagers and we uh, were part of this, I suppose, community outreach initiative that really tried to uh, bring more bring more trees uh, into Seattle. So uh, most Saturday mornings when I was a teenager, you'd find me um, in a high-vis vest <laughs> going around um, with, with my friends with a shovel planting trees along streets, um, in, in traffic circles, in parks. 
And um, when I started thinking about what um, what kind of environmentalist I wanted to be, so um, in in my movement toward becoming a geographer and toward becoming a cultural geographer in particular, it was about bringing an awareness of how cultural identity and about how cultural diversity can intersect with the way that we engage with the land. Um, and for me, it was about, I think, loosening up some of those narratives that were very prevalent at the time when I was a teenager and, and a young adult. Um, and actually, it, it, as I reflect on this, I can see that these are the same questions that I brought to my work in Belfast as well. Um, how do how do identities shape the way that we experience land? How does land shape the way that we experience our identities? I um I, I'm still quite fond of trees. I, I don't I don't write about them um, academically anymore, but uh, I think trees are a wonderful metaphor for thinking about the ways that we um, we engage with the land around us. The trees migrate as well. I mean, obviously they don't get up and move, but they, um, they, they do, their meanings migrate over time. And I think, Patrick, you're referring to some of the um, articles that I wrote about the cultural identity of trees and, and, and in, in relation to the, the conflict in Belfast. Yeah. It's so interesting what you've written in the way that you tell stories of communities and identities of people through the relationship with trees and through the through the experience of trees being present in a city or not. Yes, and I, um, I have a wonderful collaborator named Mark Johnston, who was the original uh, urban forester of Belfast. So he and I have con um, collaborated on a number of projects together, initially focusing on Belfast, but um, we, we've also looked more broadly at other places of conflict and the way that trees have um, have shaped or, or reflected the, the process of, uh, of peace building. And what are some of the ways that you say trees do that? Before you can ask the question about how can trees contribute to peace building, I think you do have to ask the question, how are trees politicized? Mm. Um, and I think I think that that's a really important question to ask because uh, it it can be very easy to move too quickly to the nice solution. <laughs> so um, as a mediator, you know, one of the things we're often trying to do is to help people resist moving too quickly to a so-called resolution. Yeah. And I think uh, from a community um, regeneration perspective, it can be a really nice photo op to get a tree planting organized, to get some politicians and some school children involved, to get some, you know, a, a nice sunny morning and people digging a hole and putting the tree in. Yeah. Um, but, but actually, I think uh, in order for that to actually have any meaning, you have to ask some really tough questions about what is the history of this place? What is the politicized history of the trees of this place? And actually, what is this act that we're doing? What does that really mean for um, for the the ways that we want to be part of the land, to to engage with it, but also how do we want to move forward with each other? I think for some folks, they might think of the idea of the political identity or the politicization of a tree. That might be the first time that people have thought about that. But I remember being struck years ago doing some community mediation and somebody was talking about trees having been used for cover with people who were using guns. And that mm -hmm. was a particular way within which a, a tree had a political identity that was put upon it, really, by how that tree was used or not. And then eventually it was knocked down because people thought that it would contribute to increased safety by not having the tree there. What are some other examples about ways within which trees are politicized in places of conflict? Um, I, I think 
one way is, is where particular types of trees become very much uh, associated with one type of community. So um, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking in, in the Belfast context of the, for instance, the, the, the oak tree, the Irish oak, really long uh, history of being a tree of the island. Um, and, and wonderful, really, really wonderful mythology and language around that. Um, but what does it mean when someone from, say, a, another community wants to <laughs> wants wants to plant a, an oak tree? Um, is, is there a way that the, I suppose the 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 very firm association of, of the oak tree with with Irish cultural history could that also be shared with other with other communities? Another way I, th I think in which trees uh, and plants in general can be politicized is when we talk about invasive species. I've never thought about that before with invasive. Yeah, what a strong word. <laughs> so I think I, I think uh, quite often, um, whether it's conscious or not, um, the the landscape can be politicized um, in, in ways that people may or may not be aware of. But but actually, I think that the language around alien species, invasive species, is one of those. I know that the physical geography of cities, you know, in terms of the geography of of forestation in in cities as well as the geography of roads and access roads in cities can be very politicized D does that do you bring yourself to looking at maps of cities when when you come to reflecting on um a city and its experience of peace or the opposite i think roads are really fascinating um are they they Roads have a history as well. I, I think, in general, I'm less interested in the whole um, urban infrastructure question than I am just more about what, um, I suppose, the, the cultural meaning of, of what a road means. Yeah. Um, Belfast was was really interesting because the, the it's a very radial city, isn't it? You've got city centre and then you've got these big roads radiating out of it. When I moved to Belfast, I spent just a lot of time just hopping on buses, <laughs> sitting on the top floor of a bus um, and uh, at the front window if I could, um, and just learning learning that the layout of, of the road system. Um, uh, and I, I did that in London as well. It's, it's a really good way to get to know a place is to um, to move move across its surface. But also, I think when you're taking public transportation, you are um, having in, you're having encounters with other people as well. Yeah. I'm struck in what you're saying about roads and what you were saying about migration too, that, you know, migration isn't just the means of getting from one place to another and roads aren't just the means of getting from one place to another, but they are a cultural identity in and of themselves to be a migrant, to be a, a, a national migrant or an intellectual migrant or a, a religious migrant, as well as then to have time on roads as cultural experiences. In both of these, I, I hear an interest in you in paying attention to the process and, and giving that process an identity rather than seeing it simply as a function. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very much speaks to the whole question of what mediation does. Mediation is a process. Um, and I think if you were to look at, look at the shape of my work and my, my passions as a whole, it is about dialogue and process. Um, and, and Padraig, you would know this being a mediator yourself, that there's, there can often be so much pressure to get to the end point but actually that end is not going to hold, whether it's a, a, a mediation between neighbors or whether it's something that's much broader, um, unless actually people are willing to move through the difficult bits to, to, to tread the road that is rocky um, in order to get to the places that feel like it's, it's the happy ending. 
And um, I think as a mediator, we we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and on the process to get to that point. But um, sometimes that's just not the case. That's not the way it pans out. And um, and you really have to say that the process of moving through this experience, of, of moving through these difficult discussions, and the courage it took to have the conversations, that needs to be honoured just as much as the end point that we did or did not reach. Leah, I'd like to talk uh, about grief um, because I'm so aware that when you work within the context of conflict, that you're dealing with very real griefs that are present in the room. Some of them, you know, I know that you'll have worked in communities in Belfast where, you know, um, people are bereaved. And so they're bringing that grief into a room. But even where there hasn't been murder, when there's when there are people in situations of conflict, there are unnamed griefs that are present. And we'll get on to talking about death cafes, but I'd be really interested to hear how you notice grief within the context of conflicts that you mediate. I think at the time when I was living in Belfast, I had not yet experienced the really sharp griefs that I've experienced um, since that time. But um, I think that that history, my, my personal history um, of being part of two communities that had been bereaved of, of people, of, of land, um, I'm thinking specifically about the, the Japanese American community that I grew up with, many of whom had lost their land when they were interned by the government um, during the Second World War. Um, you know, these these are things that these are memories that persist and, and it's a heritage that is very present, whether or not it's spoken. And do you think that griefs that are not spoken um, are particularly difficult to speak? What are some of the rules or experiences around unspoken griefs that you see in places and communities that have lived through trauma? I think that sometimes um, what happens is people feel like they don't have a right to to speak of, of grief. Um, especially if it is something that is more amorphous for them personally. Um, and I think what was really interesting about working and living in Belfast is that the, the grief, the bereavement, the loss was was quite close to the surface. Um, and there was something very, um, very real about that. You're involved in doing Death Cafes, which is such an extraordinary title, Death Café. I mean, there's no getting away um, from what you're talking about in Death Café. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, what those experiences are and how you go about facilitating those. Gladly. Um, so I came to the Death Café movement um, fairly recently. Uh, the backstory is that um, in 2017, my first child was born um, in very, very horrendous circumstances before we could get to the nearest hospital. He was born alive. We're, we're really proud of this. He lived for 39 minutes and um, his brief life and death just utterly transformed um, who I am, who I am as a parent, um, it transformed my, my way of being in the world. And um, it gave me my, uh, I suppose, the, the most personal experience I'll ever, ever have of carrying a grief with me for the rest of my life. Um, there's something about losing a child and especially a first child that utterly imprints on your, on your soul. Um, we, uh, actually coming back to your, um, your, your musings on land, Podrick, we uh, searched really far and wide for the right place to bury him. Um, we looked at cemeteries and burial grounds all across Greater London, and uh, you know some of them were, were were nice but too far away. Others were just were close by but horrendous. <laughs> um, and we, we ended up choosing um, Brompton Cemetery, which uh, which is run by the Royal Parks, 
um, it's an easy tube journey from Kilburn where, where we live. And um, as soon as I walked in there, I just thought, oh, this is the right place. I think at that point, it might have been the seventh or eighth uh, cemetery or, or burial ground that we'd visited in, in quick succession. Um, it was just uh, two or three weeks after, after Rowan's birth and death, actually. Um, but what I loved was the sense of history about the place, also the way in which that history seemed very much alive and in dialogue with the present. So Brompton Cemetery uh, was one of those historic uh, early Victorian cemeteries that, um, that you find around London. I think there are seven of them, if I remember correctly. Um, the, the iconography is, is fabulous. <laughs> and, um, and it's still, I think, known primarily as, as a Victorian burial ground. Um, but th there are some contemporary graves as well, and Rowan's is among them. So we, uh, we buried Rowan um, in this plot. And, and the, what I like about it is that it is, it's a place where there is a mixture of really old historic graves, but also some very contemporary ones from throughout the, the, um, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. I didn't realize it on the first time we went, but when we uh, went back to sign the paperwork, the place where we had chosen um, was between a cocktail inventor on one side and a nanny on the other. And I thought, what better place for my first child than between a cocktail inventor and a nanny? Mm. So um, the, the cocktail inventor had died in 2014. Uh, I did some research and we've become friends with them, with his, his family, which has been really lovely. The nanny was born in 1900 and died in 1980. So she really had an extraordinary life that spanned much of the 20th century. Um, a bit of research uh, revealed that she was the nanny to the Churchill family during the war. Wow. So um, I actually uh, was able to make contact with um, with her, uh, Churchill's great-grandson, who was one of her last charges. Um, so with his permission, we actually tend Nanny Miriam's grave. And it's, it's really lovely to think that she, uh, if she's looking out for Rowan, we're also looking out for her grave. Um, and all three graves are at the base of an enormous evergreen oak tree. So, uh, so again, we ha you have trees coming in as, as well. But back to the death cafes, I, um, the, the experience of losing a child, losing an infant in particular, brought me up quite sharply and closely to the fact that a lot of people do not want to talk about it. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of that is people not knowing what to say, but more than that is people being scared of, of their own deaths. Rowan's birth and death changed my life in all sorts of ways. And one of the really practical ways is that inadvertently, my husband, Jonathan, and I ended up purchasing our own graves at the same time. Rowan technically is buried in a cremation plot, but because he was tiny, uh, we were really, we, we, we didn't want to cremate him. And the cemetery said, he, he's, he's an infant, he'll fit nicely into, into this, this space. Rowan is buried in a, in, in just in a simple shroud in a very eco-friendly coffin. Um, and um, and there's space for uh, for six or seven more sets of ashes as long as everyone else is happy to be cremated. So the the plan is for um, Jonathan um, uh, Jonathan and I will, when the time comes, be cremated and buried with Rowan. So there's something about knowing where I'm going to end up at the end of my life, hopefully later rather than sooner, that has given me I think um, a different perspective on how I want to live the rest of my days. And one of those is to help people have more honest and courageous conversations about death, full stop. 
So um, about a year or so after Rowan's birth and death, I approached the cemetery to say, I really think that it would be um, helpful if the cemetery could be a place where we could do some community outreach, where we could start hosting the Death Cafe project. Um, and quite simply, Death Cafe is a chance for people to come together over tea and coffee and cake, if that's possible, and to have an honest conversation about death. It's, um, it's a facilitated conversation for all sorts of reasons. It needs to be held safely because people bring all sorts of vulnerabilities and fears and, and quite sensitive um, things to say to the table. Um, but unlike other programs, it, the conversation always emerges from what people want to talk about. So there's no agenda. There's never a guest speaker. It simply is people um, introducing themselves, saying what it is that they wish to speak about, and the conversation unfolds from there. Um, I, I play a bit fast and loose with the rules. Officially, uh, you're supposed to say that um, you're supposed to say quite clearly that Death Cafe is not for bereavement. It's not therapy. And I think when I started off, I, I played by the rules and you know had all of that in the publicity. But it that felt wrong to me. Um, it felt wrong that you were saying that so explicitly about what the space is not for. And what yeah. seemed more important to me was to say what it is for. And, and crucially, to say that any aspect of loss or grief is welcome at, at this table. So obviously, you know, I, if, if someone is really in distress, I want to be able to signpost them safely to appropriate resources. But um, for me, the, the big shift has been to say, no, actually, rather than, um, rather than saying what Death Cafe is not, it's to say what it is. And for me, that's about being a space where death and grief and loss in all its forms are welcome conversation partners. You have been a migrant uh, intellectually, religiously. Um, internationally, and your interest in migration and geography and land is so clear. Does it change your relationship to place to know that you have a son buried in a city and to know that you have a plot in that city? What what has that done for you in more recent years as you think about migration and place? As, as, as my, my family and I think about the fact that we will not be in London forever, it's been really important to me to know that uh, there will always be this this tiny child who anchors me to, to the city. And again, as I said, um, knowing knowing that wherever I migrate next, <laughs> I will return to London um, at the end of my life really makes me think. Um, I, I, I could never have imagined that this would be the place where I will be buried, but it is. And it, what it has done, I think, is to really um, emphasize the idea that London is my home. That uh, wherever I go next, London will always be home to me. Um, I was born in Seattle. Uh, I've tr lived and traveled to many different places, but at the beginning of my life was Seattle, and at the end will be London. And who knows what will come between. Leah Shimada, thank you so much for coming on the Caramilla podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Our guest this week was Dr. Leah Shimada. Be sure to listen right to the end when Leah reveals why the creator of The Muppets would make a great house guest. And if you had three or four minutes to give us some feedback, we'd be really grateful. This has been our first year making a podcast, and we know that if we're to do a second season, it'll be made all the better based on your feedback. So we'd be delighted with a few minutes of your time on the forum. Find it 
as well as the transcript and questions for this episode on corimila.org forward slash podcast or linked through the show notes in your podcast app. Thanks for listening to this Corimila podcast. I'm Padraigo Tuma and I'll be back next week with the final episode. The Corimila podcast comes to you with the generous support of our funders, the Fund for Reconciliation of the Irish Government, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland and the support of the Friends of Corimila who give monthly or annually. The Corimila podcast is a fan fun production. The researcher and producer is Emily Rawling and the podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. Could you tell us about a time when your national identity felt important to you? Yes, it was when I was living in Nepal. No one would believe I was American. Um, it became very frustrating. They'd, they'd never seen an American who looked like me, someone who was uh, Japanese, Chinese, and very tall. Um, so I used to have a, a lot of uh, arguments with people about whether or not I was American. And uh, frequently I would just give up and tell people I was Swedish. <laughs> um, what three people from your culture's present or past would you want to be in a lockdown bubble with? Well, I should first start off by saying the single thing that would improve the quality of my lockdown experience would be more childcare. Uh-huh. We have a, a toddler who's now yeah. nearly 22 months. Um, he's, oh. he's beautiful, but he's all over the place. So my uh, three people with whom I would like to form a lockdown bubble would all be very useful for childcare. <laughs> they are Jim Henson, the creator of The Muppets, because Brecken is really into The Muppets right now. That would um, buy me a lot of time to do work. <laughs> Also, uh, Michelle Obama, um, I think she is extraordinary in terms of being able to juggle a working life and, um, and a, public, uh, a public role and also um, raising children. I think I'd have a lot to learn from her. Plus, she could also help us plant a, a, a vegetable garden. I, I think I would choose Nanny Miriam, who's, who's buried next to Rowan. Um, she's, I think, culturally very, very different from who I am, but we, we have a deep connection with her. <laughs> so I would bring her back to life and give her charge of Brecken every now and then. Um, has anyone ever said to you, Leah, that you were disloyal to one of your cultures or identities? Uh, yes, actually, it was in Belfast. Um, I... Uh, as I said earlier, um, I was living in Belfast at a time when there was a lot of anti-Asian uh, sentiment. Um, this, would, I suppose, would have been the 2007 period. Um, and and I, it's a combination of micro, microaggressions, but also actual aggressions. So I, I actually was physically assaulted um, a few times. Um, you know, nothing that required hospitalization. But for instance, people spitting on me, uh, calling me names. Um, you know, people throwing eggs at me. Uh, again, with with some racist abuse. Um, I decided not to go to the police, uh, partly because uh, I was trying to do this really delicate work of building relationships with the uh, with an array of communities, and I didn't want to shake anything. But one of my friends, actually a fellow American expat who was living in Belfast, was dismayed that I, I chose not to do that. And I don't think she would actually say that I was being disloyal, but we had some quite interesting conversations about why I was not ready and willing to go to the police over those incidents. And in hindsight, I, I don't know if I did the right thing or not by not going and reporting them.